Good morning, afternoon, or evening, Grace House Church listeners, whenever this episode is finding you. Just a quick editor's note before you listen to this episode. There was a baby in the room while this was recorded, and though we love having the children sitting in, and this particular baby really does enrich the environment in person, he does provide a lot of, let's say, background praise in this episode. So, fair warning, thank you for joining him and listening in, and we will try to ensure he is imprisoned somewhere far away during future recordings. Just kidding, but truly, thank you for your understanding, and enjoy the sermon. In John 18, 37 to 38, famous place of scripture, Jesus is before Pilate, you remember. He's about to be crucified. And here's what it says. Then Pilate said to him, so... You are a king? Question mark. Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? Now that was 2,000 years ago. And it held significant relevance for that historic moment. But honestly, it holds just as much significance for our historic moment. I've seen in the span of my lifetime, which is really short and young, just a few number of years, just kidding, 46. But I have seen the dissolving of believing in absolute truth. It's eroding, and even on Barna and the statistics, those who claim and identify with Christian, evangelical Christian, 75% don't believe in absolute truth, which is bonkers. It's what our whole thing's based on, (laughs) is a historic truth, an objective reality that interprets everything else. And so, as the foundation, Paul is saying... At the start of the armor, you need to put on the belt of truth. And there's so many people nowadays saying, what is truth? What is truth? How can you truly know what is true? And they say, respect my truth. I have to be true to my truth. I have to lean into my truth. I have to live my truth. And so all of a sudden, truth has become this subjective thing like flavors of ice cream. I could prove to you with all my might and every bit of evidence that I could muster that a dark chocolate and peanut butter ice cream from Baskin Robbins is the best. But my kids will just as vigorously, to my utter horror, I kid you not, I'm horrified, say vanilla is the best. And I'm like, how? It doesn't have a flavor. I don't understand. So anyways, those are subjective things. But what's crazy is people are battling over subjective things like their objective reality. And really, to be tolerant in this day and age, you have to believe my subjective truth. And you have to embrace it. And you have to almost treat it like it is objective truth. Our world is filled with opinions. And now everybody's a professional because of the access we have to information. And so many in our world is saying, what is truth? So Christians can be struggling with that same thing. What is truth? What is truth? What is truly true? I want to look at today, ready, set, go, truth and truthfulness and Jesus the hero. So ready, set, go. Let's go to verse 14 and 15, Ephesians chapter 6. Stand therefore. 
Now he said stand quite a few times. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel. Guys, I'm not going to dive into the whole spiritual warfare. Again, we've talked the past couple of weeks about that. But just a reminder, we're in a battle constantly. Number two, it's not against flesh and blood. People are the occasion for our sin, but they're never the cause of it. Heat comes into our life, and our response to the heat can either be one from the cross or one of thorns. So traffic, when I'm in traffic, and this is something the Lord's working with me on, I mostly stay in the right lane because I'm like, I'll get there. It's cool. I just chill. And it's so good. The drive's so good. I follow a semi, and I just, I just kick it. Sometimes a little like I'm in a hurry and I'll get over in the left. And then all of a sudden I'm like in this different world. The difference between the right lane and the left lane is astronomical. I kid you not. Now people are cutting in front of me, weaving in and out, slamming on their brakes, brake checking you. And then I find myself, I'm like, oh no, you don't. And then I'll make sure somebody can't pass. He gets behind me. Then I'll slow down. You like that? And then pretty soon I'm like, what am I doing? What am I participating in? And so often what's happening God allows the heat, right? God allows the occasions for our response. And we can respond in grace or we can respond in a sinful way with the thorns. And so we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ultimately, there's another, there's an enemy behind people. And so it's not that they make me do it. It's that that's the occasion. And it's often revealing what my heart and how my heart responds to that. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we are in a battle constantly. And it's a fierce battle. Paul gives the image of the wrestling. And again, he's not using two different metaphors. My son wrestled at the Stockton Arena this last weekend. I don't really have a point to that, but just to say that as a proud dad. Anyways, but the idea of wrestling is he doesn't take one image, soldiers fighting, and then two wrestlers at the Olympics. No, he's saying... The battle is so desperate that when it gets to that hand-in-hand combat, that's how desperate it is. Where arrows don't work, you're too close. Where you are in the mud, in the dirt, you are pounding and pouncing on one another. That's the image he wants to strike in our minds. That's how ever-present the battle is, right? That's how ever-present. And what is the goal of the battle from the enemy side? Steal, kill, and destroy. What is the battle? Why does God allow the battle from his perspective? That we have life, right? That we have victory, that we stand in that victory, that we see his glory, that we see his strength, that we see his might as we lean into him, that we stand still and see the salvation of the Lord on a daily basis. We see him do the impossible, which is often parting and softening my own heart toward people. So this thing is in tense the reality of the battle and the victory remember what we said you don't concentrate on what the devil's doing but what you're doing remember there's it's not about the focus isn't on the devil it's about standing in the strength of the lord's might it's on being strong in the lord and the power of his might it's on you abiding and appropriating what jesus christ has done for you that's where the victory is not going out in our own strength and trying to tackle him herself it is appropriating and standing in Christ's full work. It doesn't matter what tack the enemy takes, what path. 
if he's crawling on his belly like a snake or flying overhead like a bird trying to snatch the seed, stand. Are you ready? If the armor is on, you can handle it. Stand in the day. If you're appropriating Christ, then no matter what he throws at you, you'll be able to stand in the evil day. The belt is different than all the other pieces of armor. Than the breastplate, the helmet, the shoes, the shield, and the sword. The belt wasn't something you used to defend yourself with. It wasn't a piece of armor like the others. The belt of truth is the foundation of the armor. It's what held everything else together. Belt brings order to the attire, right? It holds things in place. Most of us men have belts in here, right? We're wearing them. Perhaps as we celebrate more birthdays, those belts become more of a necessary thing. I don't know. It's for me. Now, the belt that he's talking about, he's not just talking about keeping your pants up. He's talking about keeping everything together and keeping you clutter-free. So in those days, the soldiers would wear almost like kilts. You guys have seen gladiators. What they would do is when they went to action or they were going to battle is that they would then take up their tunic, they would take up their rope, and they tuck it into their belt. Because what that meant is it meant, I don't want to trip. I don't want it to catch on anything. One of the fascinating things, and this is a point about wrestling, is how tight those uniforms are. Holy smokes. You can snap somebody really bad. Those things are, why? Because they don't want somebody to get a hold of them. It's different than jujitsu, right? You have the big gi and you're grabbing hold of their gi and you're doing the moves and putting them in the arm bar and stuff. The wrestling, that is don't grab any part of me. I don't want you to be able to grab anything but to use the technique. So it holds things in place. It brings order to the attire. Paul is using the physical body, the idea of a soldier to communicate a spiritual truth. When the belt is there, I'm ready to move. You never leave home without it. It will hold things together. The reason you need a belt, the soldier would wear that long flowing rope, and then he, when he would get ready for action, would tuck it in. It means to move unencumbered, without tripping, move with freedom, no stumbling or falling. The other armor was attached to it, and it held everything together. Now, that's the soldiers, and that's something practical. As they went to war, they would do that. All through Scripture... This metaphor is coming back and back again and again. Remember where it says, I think it's King James or New King James. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the idea. It means tuck it in, get ready, right? I'm going to read a couple of verses for you. Exodus 12, 11. It says, and this is on the night of the Passover. This is where they're getting ready to leave Egypt and start the Exodus out. Moses says to them, and thus shall you eat with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the night they were going to eat, they were to take those robes and they were to tuck them in. And they were to eat with their shoes on their feet, which remember, dirty in those days, dusty, that was unusual because the table was super low, lower than this table right here, and you'd recline and you would lean on your elbow to eat and everybody would be laying around each other. So it was very unusual to not take your sandals off, put them at the door, wash your feet, anoint them with oil, scented oil. And so he was saying, be ready to go. Okay. 
Luke 12, 35, keep your shirts on. This is the message. So he's saying the same thing, gird up your loins. But he's speaking to servants, keep your shirts on, keep the lights on. Be like house servants waiting for their master to come back from his honeymoon, awake and ready to open the door when he arrives and knocks. Lucky the servants whom the master finds on watch, he'll put on an apron, sit them at the table and serve them a meal sharing his wedding feast with him. It doesn't matter what time of night he arrives, they're awake and so blessed. So he's saying about the second coming, remember the whole point of the second coming in scripture? There's a lot of obsession about the end times, but the point in scripture, the main thrust of it is not how to find the second coming, but how the second coming finds you. Watching, waiting, ready, sober, vigilant, Jeremiah 117, when Jeremiah is being commissioned, remember, he's a kid. He's like, I'm a youth. I can't speak. God says, don't say that. And he tells Jeremiah, thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed of their faces, lest I confound thee before then. And then Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and 16. So roll up your sleeves. Get your head in the game. Does he sound like a coach? It's like halftime, right? Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy. You be holy. And so the whole first point of this Take up the belt of truth, girding your loins, putting that belt, tucking that thing in, being ready for battle is that we are sober and aware and ready, unencumbered by the affairs of this life. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of this warfare, Paul writes, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who then point number one as talking about the belt of truth girding it up is he saying we are here for a reason that his kingdom would come that people would see the reality that he's our treasure that everything else would be filtered through that one pursuit paul says in first corinthians 9 they do it for an imperishable crown they'll go for it they'll just for something that's going to wither and die, a wreath that's gone. We do it for an imperishable. He's saying, number one, as you're talking about girding up our loins and in this battle, is he's saying the thing that entangles us so often is the affairs of this life. Is that we make God a pie. And we have a pie chart. And here's work. Here's marriage. Here's family, here's vacation, here's hobby time, and here's Jesus time. Paul's saying, no, you see all of life through your relationship with Christ. Everything is filtered. He is your worldview. You remember the story of the sower of the seeds, right? That sower went out and he scattered seeds. Some were stolen away by the birds of the air. What about the ones that grew up, but then were choked out? So immediately they had root. When the disciples asked Jesus, what does this mean? He said, it's the cares of this world that choked out the good seed. You remember Hebrews 12 
since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us, like laying aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us or entangles us. The idea there is being tripped up, is having something out. It's not being girded up. It's not being single-minded. It's being tossed to and fro by the cares of this world. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Don't say, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Or what are we going to have? What am I going to wear? He's saying that could take all our energy and time that we are obsessed on. How many of you have thought, I'm going to be generous when I have enough? Classic, right? Or I just have to get this. Or I just need to do this. The cares of this world. So gird up, put on the belt of truth, be ready, be sober, be unencumbered. So let's just ask ourselves a question. Are there things right now happening in this world, in your life, where you feel entangled? Where you feel keep you back or strip you away from what is primary? Let the Holy Spirit search that. So back to... Take up the belt of truth. Now in Greek, the word is aletheia, and it can be translated truth or truthfulness. And commentators go back and forth on what does it mean? Is he talking about like truth as far as objective truth? Or is he talking about truth as far as integrity? Truth is content. Truth is opposed to falsehood. Truth is defined as the revelation of God. Or it can be defined as an attitude of truthfulness or non-hypocrisy sincerity or honesty or integrity and honestly i think the ambiguity is planned i love planned ambiguity because i think it means both right so we're going to hit both number one objective truth truth is what is true in any matter under consideration it's reality not what i feel is real or what circumstances tell me is real or what culture says is true but what God declares in his word is true and real. Truth is an objective standard by which reality is measured. Truth is a fixed standard. Truth is reality in its original norm and its origin, something that doesn't change. Plane pilots, if you got on the plane and they left their mic on and you're in the air and they're like, George, what are you doing? It's this way. He's like, I, I really think it's this way. He'd be like, what? Don't think. He's like, but I really feel this is the way we should go today. No, don't. That would be terrible. You'd be like, did anybody pack a parachute? I don't want to be here. Pilots are taught to go by their instruments, not their feelings. Not what's popular. Why? Because those instruments are objective measurements of what is true, of gravity, of barometric pressure, of all these things. The instruments tell them what is true and inform the way that the pilot should go. Not what I think, not the, here's what I feel like we should do today. Let's take them around this way. The control tower. Most of them, the control towers have been in the news. Yikes. Planes have almost crashed into one another because someone fell asleep in the control tower. Thank the Lord, the control tower of heaven never misses a beat. But the control tower gives you an objective perspective 
because your sight is limited. You are a finite, limited human being, and you need objective reality from someone who can see. We are children, right? Children in the kingdom. We need that objective perspective from our Father in heaven who sees it all, who can see when that plane's coming or tells you what is truly true, even if you can't see it. That's where faith starts again. Do I trust the control tower? Do I trust that they have a perspective? I don't. Electricity is objective, right? I have been blown off an eight-foot ladder like the kid in Jurassic Park. Not as my hair didn't stand up on my arms it did, but I have grabbed electricity and I have flown off. I've been under a switch here where all the power comes into a building and I've lifted my arm a little too high holding onto a ground rod. And I've had it slam me on the ground like I was dropped from 10 feet. And I was literally laying on the ground. Couldn't move, they had to pull me out. Now, I don't care what it's working on. I check with every instrument. Is it on? I treat, even I was telling somebody, they're like, why are you doing that? Why are you using your strippers that way to strip the wire? There's no power in the building. I said, train, like there's power everywhere. Because, you know, because there is an objective reality. And when you run headlong into it, it doesn't matter how you feel that day, what you ate for breakfast, how many friends you have, how many people believe it with you. It's dead. There's no power. It will bite you. It will bite you. Objective truth, objective reality. I think one of the problems with objective truth is we don't like it. I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago, and I kept asking her about all these things I found online. I'm like, what about this pill? And she's all, don't even bother with that. That's ridiculous. And I was like, oh, okay, that kind of hurt my feelings. I did a lot of research. I could be a doctor too. And she kind of was just like, put me in my place a couple times on a couple different things. And I got out of there and I started looking up like other doctors. I'm like, I don't need this. And I was like, wait, what am I doing? Isn't that how so often we are with truth sometimes? That we're like, eh, I don't like the truth. Let's just find another, let's find another truth. Let's find a truth that agrees with our truth. If that's the culture of the day, that's ever present. People leave churches over that. We don't like that truth. Was it true? Was it glorifying to Jesus? Was it Jesus-centered? Maybe it's not Jesus is the problem. Maybe it's our hearts didn't like what Jesus was calling us to, what he was saying. I know I have kids that struggle. I have seen it. I've struggled in my own heart. Culture is saying, this is true. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That's not popular. It goes against the grain. It goes against what's popular in spirituality. He's saying no one comes to the Father except through me. The enemy takes ground through lies. Satan will come with his wiles, right? His schemes. I love that word wiles. We don't really use that anymore. Ah, he's so wily, right? So that's why we named the character Wily Coyote. He's the scheming coyote. So he comes with his schemes, which is the same word translated cunning craftiness in chapter 4, verse 14. Here it is. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The same idea. And the point there is that doctrine, that false doctrine, the wrong ideas 
about God. The enemy loves to tell us wrong ideas about God. It goes back to the garden. Has God really said? There's so much in that. Did he really? Did you mishear him? Was he not clear enough? Man, I thought a God of all power would be really clear for you. That he'd be understanding. It seems like he doesn't trust you. Why is he putting a border around this? He wants this to himself. He wants the best for himself. Is he really looking out for your best? Can you really trust him? Why is he holding this back? So much in that wrong ideas about God. Chiefly, the idea that you can, in your own strength, appease God. That in your own might and in your own trying, you can draw yourself and make yourself righteous enough to be pleasing to him. That is the yeah. false doctrine that of all that is carried about. It's Cain and Abel. Remember, Abel approached the presence of God through a substitute, a sacrifice. But Cain, the inventor of religion, he's like, no, I will grow the best vegetables. I will grow the best produce. Yeah, my dad and mom told me stories about the Garden of Eden and how great the food was there. I'm going to even better that. And he comes to God on his own efforts, thinking his best will make him acceptable in the presence of a holy God. Every single religion that you do something to make yourself acceptable to God, it's through your own effort, your own willpower, your own ingenuity, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own might, that you are saved. That is false. That is false beyond false. We cannot, in the presence of a holy God, remember, God is holy. He's other. He's not like us a little better. He's other. You remember just his yeah. presence, like, like just the presence of God, whatever dimension that heaven is, the fourth or fifth dimension, interacting with the atoms and the molecules at Sinai, the rocks could not handle it and shook. Like... The electrical charges in the sky, it says there were thunderings and lightnings. They all bowed to his omnipresence. Remember, he's not just a little better than us. And to think that we can make ourselves pleasing to a holy God is buying the ultimate lie. That's why Jesus came. That's why we have to be rescued. That's why we needed to be saved. It would be like if you're drowning and you don't know how to swim. You fall over the side of a boat and somebody throws you a manual on how to swim. That's like insult to injury, right? That's horrible. Paul is saying the only way for you to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the word of God interpret reality for you. Satan will bombard you constantly with lies from the very beginning. Satan's strategy has been to get people to discard the word of God. His first question was, has God really said this? Or number two, he'll make you try to neglect it. Number one, to doubt God's word. Number two, he'll try to make you neglect it. And that's really the challenge. We have so many versions of the Bible and so much access to it. 
that it can almost be like, I'll get to it. Yeah, I'll get to it. Not that you doubt the word of God. That's not the issue or the problem. But maybe it's that we just don't know it. Have you ever prayed with somebody where they're praying and all of a sudden you're like, I think that's a scripture. 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 And it's just so powerful just knowing the word of God and the word of God knowing you. Searching it out and knowing it. To be students. The best a sermon can do for you is tide you over. You know, what is a sermon? Because you need meat. That's an image given that we need to eat meat. The meat of God's word. What is a sermon? It is meat that is passed through the digestion of somebody else. It's milk. It's milk. In fact, uh, Matt, what did you eat three weeks ago for lunch? Yeah. You don't know. That's like sermons, right? You don't know what you ate three weeks ago, but you know at the time you needed it. But the point is that you have to get into the word yourself. You have to study it. You have to know it. You have to let it know you. You have to let it search you. You have to let it contradict you. You have to let it, like, wound you. When it talks about that sword that cuts deep, it often cuts deep into us. Man. To my absolute shame, I used to listen to radio on my way to work that really cemented me in my leanings that weren't necessarily in line with Jesus. And I say necessarily with air quotes because they weren't at all in line with Jesus. And I remember being so angry at like immigration and like just oh, taking jobs and just this caricaturing an entire group of people and then reading the scripture that says be kind to the foreigner because you were foreigners you were exiles and i can't tell you what that did to my heart it destroyed me it was like oh wait i am the immigrant i'm a pilgrim on this earth passing through like i wasn't part of Abraham's family. I wasn't part of this. I've been grafted in. I'm a Gentile that God has pursued and reached out and saved. And all of a sudden it transformed, but it cut, it wounded. It started cutting off these things, these foundations, these weird things that I built in my life. It pruned my worldview and how I saw the world, how I looked at the world. And scripture will do that as you let it search you, as you let it transform you. And then that becomes a foundation. His word is the rock that we build it on. Now when I make future decisions, it's through the lens of scripture and not through my own bias, not through my own experience, not through what's happened to me or this experience or that experience. I let scripture inform my worldview and who I am. You can find any church who will tell you what you want to hear. And that's what a lot of us want. We want just somebody to say back to us what we want because we want to make sure we're believing the right thing. It's so good to be challenged in those things. It's so good to hear other perspectives, to not sit in one camp, to see something greater, to see a bigger picture. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote a 38-volume set on, he was going to give an answer to Every question that a man could ask. And he was set to it. And then he went to a worship service. And this one was different. And he stopped writing. He never wrote again. And his guy who was taking his notes for him said, aren't you going to write or are you going to finish? And he said, I've glimpsed eternity. And I feel like what I've written is so much straw. 
God so big and transcendent, right? That he's so great. He's so infinite. We're not. We're finite. And so he's constantly growing us every day. He's constantly conforming us to his truth. He's sanctifying us in his truth. We have to grow until glory. And then guess what? We get to keep growing in glory. But without all that curse. So objective truth. The way to resist is with truth. He is a liar and the father of lies, our enemy. One of the main things the enemy does is come with lies, so we must know truth. So he either makes us doubt God's word or he wants to make us neglect God's word. Now, this is amazing. Listen to how this works. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I've heard that verse so many times and I've never really sat with it. Let me just sit with you for like two minutes. The idea... When it says that we destroy strongholds, is that the enemy wants to put something in your way. In fact, the word destroy every lofty thing is the word we get our word for partition. Have you ever partitioned a hard drive? I know I'm nerdy now a little bit. Partitioned a memory card. What does that do? Your keeping data in one place and not allowing it to go to the other. You've partitioned it. I mean, what a picture of what the enemy tries to do. He tries to partition you from the truth of God. He doesn't want the truth of God getting through to your head. He wants to wall it off. He wants to build a fortress there of lies. He doesn't want the light getting in. He wants to keep you partitioned. He says we dismantle speculations. The idea is that you're like destroying, you're laying siege to speculations. What are speculations? Assumptions. There's this part in Nehemiah where at one point as they're building the wall, there's people from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and they all run and they all tell Nehemiah, the enemy's coming, the enemy's coming. And he's like, tell me more about it. Did you see him? And he's like, no, somebody told me. It's speculation. It's this thing that's urgent that feels like the truth but isn't the truth how often does god's timing not line up with your timing i've witnessed it myself we were getting ready to move out of our house i was a kid and there was this one house we looked at and we're like this is the one the owner of the house we're gonna rent it he went on vacation to mexico and then the people said you've got to be out of the house tomorrow Somebody else is moving in. So my dad, being the man of faith that he is, amazing. He said, get a truck. God's going to provide us a house. Wait a minute. That's out of order. That's not how that works. You don't get a truck. We have to have somewhere to go. We loaded the truck halfway. Nowhere to move to. We're going to sleep at a friend's house. We can keep our truck loaded up. We, it's not that we like didn't look anywhere else. There was nowhere else. Everything was, we could not find a place. As we're loading the truck, 
the owner of that other house and his wife drive by. They found the address on the rental application. They see the truck. They're loading it up and they say, you got the house. And my dad was like, hey, I didn't think you were supposed to come home yet. I thought you had another week. He said, my wife had a dream two nights ago that you were in trouble. So we quit our vacation early and came up to see what's happening. God's timing is not our timing. But often what we do is we lean into speculation because we only see from our perspective. And what we see is we see God doesn't love us. God, you haven't paid my bill in time. God, you haven't provided. You haven't done this. You haven't met my needs. All the while, he's pulling a million strings to provide in a way that will blow your mind, that you'll never forget, that will be etched into your brain. Because the Lord knows that as much as we needed to know what house we were moving into, us kids needed to learn that he's a miracle worker and that he can be depended on and that he can be trusted. When God moves, he's, we think he's playing checkers. He's playing fifth dimensional chess. Like he's doing a thousand things at once to graft into your heart, to etch it into your memory that he can be trusted, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That his promises are yea and amen. So guys, I just think, what a picture of what the enemy does, that he tries to partition you from God's truth. And God is saying, use truth to dismantle everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. He even says, and this is amazing, guys, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you know what that means? It means your thoughts are people you need to capture and interrogate. You need to interrogate them. And you need to say, why are you here? What are you trying to do? Are you smuggling anything across that I need to know about? That's what we're supposed to do with our thoughts. Is this obeying Christ? Is it glorifying Christ? That's insane. That's amazing. In another way, in Philippians, he says... Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good report, think on those things. Those are the ones you let through. Let the praise and the thanksgiving, let the adoration, let the wonderment at his works and his words, let them through and keep at bay those who bring speculation, those who bring that doubt, those who bring that thing that wants to lure us into its spell to put us to sleep. Get rid of anything that blocks God's point of view from getting through your point of view, your parents' point of view, your friend's point of view. Like only God's point of view is what we let through. And uh, man, Paul is saying that this is the foundation. The belt of truth is a little different than the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The truth of the Bible used offensively, not offensively. <laughs> Although there are people who do that and need to repent. But the belt of truth is the objective truth used subjectively. And so now we just turn briefly to use it inwardly. So truthfulness. To take the truth and apply it to the inward parts. Unless you take the truth of the word of God and take it deep inside you, the most private and intimate parts of your soul, you can put on the armor of God. To take the truth of God and to embrace it, to digest it, to make it part of yourself 
embraced, believed, used in daily life. This belt of truth must encompass our whole life. It should encircle us, leaving no gaps. Remember, we're standing in Christ and what he has done. We're standing in his truth. What he says is truly true about reality. What he says is true about your identity, not what you feel is true. Think of anxiety and worry in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Suffering. Romans 8.18, for I consider, he's accounting, he's taking account, he's taking stock, he's weighing things, putting it in the balances. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering. So Paul looks and he goes, yeah, it's hard. It's brutal. I'm hungry sometimes. I'm shipwrecked sometimes. I get stoned and left for dead sometimes. I get beaten with rods. I get lashed. I'm naked. I'm in constant peril and constant threats. That's hard. But what's coming? What's coming is insane. It's amazing. It's going to make all that look like an ampite. I consider, I weigh it. In the moment of my struggle, and the moment of my turmoil, I consider, I take hold of that thought, I take it captive, and I make it obey Christ. Focus yourself. Talk to yourself about the truth. Your mind is running in a hundred different directions. Focus your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Think. Nothing has changed, but you have a new perspective, and now you have rearranged your thinking. The truth has come in. Take the armor and look at the world through these things. Go up to the watchtower of the gospel and look at true reality. The belt of truth makes us able to use all the other pieces of armor. It holds it together, an objective, true thing. And then that inward reality. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 7, 17, 17. Honesty and integrity and reality inwardly. Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. So it's not just what I believe. It's also in my heart how I live. It's who I am. It's letting the objective truth permeate me till it has an impact and shapes me. 1 John 1, 5, 7, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's saying that the truth of the good news impacts and changes the truth of your character, who you are. Being who you really are, walking in the light. 
be real, don't pretend, no hypocrisy. The old word sincere I heard, I think it's Latin, comes from the word meaning without wax. And the idea behind that was when they would carve statues out of marble and stone, you'd work for days and months on that. If somebody commissioned you to do that, you're down to the nose, you're doing the flare of the nostril, and you hit the chisel just a little too hard, and the whole nose clumps off, and you're like, no! And so what you do, instead of being forthcoming and truthful and saying, hey, what do you think about the Sphinx? That's pretty cool is you would ground up some granite or ground up some rock and mix it with wax and then you put it on. And uh, and then they'd see it and they'd be like, oh, sweet, it's done. But in the heat of the day, a month, was it sitting in the atrium or whatever, the sun would beat on it and that nose would just start to slide down that face. And so the stonemasons would advertise sincere statues without wax. Without wax. And so Paul is saying, don't... He's saying... We need to be without wax. That idea of sincere and integrity, that idea of what is what you get. That's why it's so important that church is a hospital and not a museum where we display works of art. We need rescue every day. I need rescue every day. I need your prayers every day. I struggle every day. I don't think... I don't know how all of us have done this last week. Did any of us make it without stumbling, falling flat on our face? But what begins to happen is we feel like we can't be sincere because we have something to prove to one another or worst of all, something to prove to God. That, oh God, I'm really not like God desires to rescue you every day. It's his business. Like he said it, he came for those who were sick and needed rescue. And so it's so important that we continue to cultivate that in this culture, brokenness. Ongoing brokenness about our marriages, about our friendships, about our struggle with forgiveness. Man, I still wrestle with the struggle to forgive. So hard, guys. And I know it. And it gets rescued a little bit. But man, I said something to me this last week on a phone call. And it brought back this whole wave. Like every feeling I've ever had. Every tear that had been poured. I couldn't take it. I was so overwhelmed. And I literally, it was like I got punched in the stomach. And I didn't know it was there. I thought I'd moved on. I thought I'm good. And it was like this one thing. And it was like everything was back. The struggle's back. And I need his rescue. I need that on a daily basis. We need to be a culture where we're encouraging one another, where we're holding up each other's arms and not weighing each other's arms down by some perfectionism. And then you'll be okay. There was a pastor, my son actually showed me this video. He said, Dad, this really made me think. And this pastor asked, if this person lived this life, would you let them into church? Basically, the pastor said, yeah. And the guy was like, what? And so the pastor asked him, do you clean yourself up before you get in the shower? He's like, no. Why should we expect people to clean themselves up before they get to Christ? Who's a rescuer? Who changes things? It's not us. It's not church that changes things. It's Jesus Christ, the head of the church, that does it. He's the only one who can raise the dead, right? In that way. So... 
Man, a real honest look at the depth of sin and then a long gazing at the Savior. I was reading through Psalm 119 a little bit, and in Psalm 119, it's all about the Word. It's all. It starts off, when I was first like getting grace and stuff, I read Psalm 119 and it tripped me up because it's, God, you favor those who are clean and of a pure heart, who have kept themselves this and kept themselves that. And I was like, ah. But if you keep reading... In verse 176, it took a while, and this is my his, this is my testimony. It takes a while. Is the psalmist writes and says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. He's saying, I don't meet these. I don't match up to them. I need to be rescued like a sheep that's gone astray. I'm just a sheep. What am I? I need a shepherd in my life. Who are we really? The Bible declares that we're broken individuals who need God every step of the way. But we can so often pretend we can play church. And, but when we're in a battle, that doesn't work. God asks us to be real. Some of the hardest persons to be honest with, for some of us, is God himself. Some of us just need to say, God, I'm broken. I need you. Hypocrisy will destroy a church. It creates a whole false culture where you can never be real, never be weak. And if you can't be those things, you can't be healed. Jesus bids everyone who is weak and weary and tired to come to him for rest. If you're heavy laden and have burdens. So let me just finish this. Truth is not to be an abstract thing. The most important dimension of the belt of truth is the truth about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. To know me is to know truth. To not know me is to be totally deceived about life. Jesus is to be our worldview. Even as we read other scripture, we read it, read it through the lens of Jesus. Paul repeated that in Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In Jesus, you see the truth about yourself, that we were created for God. And that's why nothing in the world could ever satisfy us. Because we were created to know him and love him. And in the cross of Jesus, we see that we are sinners who have separated ourselves from God and stood condemned. And in the cross of Jesus, you see the truth about God, that he loved us so much that he took that punishment for us. And so Paul prays in Ephesians 1, verse 16 to 17, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Not just truth, but the truth as it is in Jesus. Paul is praying that we might know him who is truth personally and intimately. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 17, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. So he's praying that they might have strength. Why? to go out and to know everything, to go out and to conquer every lie. He's praying that they might be rooted and grounded in his love that Christ may dwell in their hearts. And that he is true might be at home in our hearts. He who is truth encompasses our whole being, making every part true. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story that he was on a train. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he was a pastor was a doctor and a really good doctor. Somebody on the train turned blue in the face, started frothing at the mouth, and fell down in the aisle. 
Everybody got up and panicked. They said, stop the train, stop the train, somebody call a doctor. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor. He got up and he said, stop. This man is having an epileptic fit. Look at this. Look at this. These are the symptoms. Look at this and this. All you have to do is this. Don't panic. Do this and this. It will be over pretty soon. We probably don't even need to take him to the hospital. Just do this and this. What happened in the car when that authority spoke? The panic turned to peace. It turned to cooperation. It turned to teamwork. Everybody calmed down. Why? Somebody had the truth. Somebody knew the truth. As soon as he began to tell the truth, everybody instantly knew it was the truth. Information, insight into the real nature of things. That's what's in the word of God. And that kind of note of clarity and authority needs to be operating in our lives. Jesus is the authority in our lives. Remember we talked about it last week. I delight in your law. I meditate on it day and night. What does he say? He's saying, you are my authority. I thrive and flourish when you are my authority. And I'm not. That's what I was made for. Truth is more than information and facts. John 8, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Doesn't matter how many people voted for it. If it disagrees with the divine point of view, it isn't truth. The truth that's revealed in Jesus is what we're after. God's truth. Jesus' truth. Not man's truth. And the enemy can't handle that truth. You see that, right? When Jesus is being tempted. You said over and over, it's written. It's written. It's written. Thank you, Siri. That's awesome. Hey, she found it for me. Wow. She, she found the Matthew chapter 4. The enemy had to leave in the face of that truth. Stand on what he's done, what he says you are, your new identity, that you are hidden him. And as the Father adores him because you're hidden Christ, the Father adores you. The Father celebrates you as if you've obeyed as perfectly as Jesus, as if you've done everything as right as Jesus. That is crazy. Could you imagine if you faced the world with that truth, that reality? That is incredible. So how did this come about? How could a holy God come to sinful man and exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness and hide us in him. The story of Joshua and Jericho, you remember as they are planning out their strategy, Joshua goes to the captain of the Lord of hosts. He sees a pre-incarnate appearance, a theophany of Jesus as a soldier, right? And, and Joshua asks him, he says, are you for us or for, your, for our enemy? And that it's the best answer in the world because it's the only one God would give. He says, neither. <laughs> it's so good because when he's saying, you know, I'm not a God you sprinkle onto your divine plate like salt. You're either for me or you're against me. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. You remember he gives them the plan, right? And they march around Jericho seven time, or for seven days and then they march around on the seventh day, the seventh time, and then they all blow a trumpet and shout, and the whole walls come crumbling down, right? The enemy's defeated, right? Not one of the Israelites perished. Now, 
early in Stockton, I went on a prayer retreat with a bunch of different pastors, and it was amazing. But they actually taped out on the ground the city of Stockton, like on a map. And at one point, we all marched around seven times, and I felt a little out of place. But it was amazing to be with my brothers. But the point of the story is in Jericho and the walls that came crumbling down and the enemy that perished that day is who we are in the story. That the captain of the Lord of hosts had every right to put us to death with his just wrath at the edge of his sword. That we have not only been misguided, deceived, but that we are actually enemies of God. You see, when two kingdoms try to occupy the same space, there's war. God says, all creation's mine. And we said, not me. This is mine. This is my world. So there was war. There was conflict. There was enmity. Guys, our biggest problem in life was not How are we going to make it? Or will I be recognized? Or will I ever stop this bad habit? That is so far down the list. Your greatest problem in life, and don't ever forget it, was that the God of the universe stood opposed to you. And you had nothing to stand on. Because your righteousness, the best, was a filthy rag in his holy sight. So who are we in the story? We're definitely not the captain of the Lord of hosts. We're not Joshua. As much as I'd love, you'd love the namesake, guess who we were? We're the ones in the city. We're the ones that the wrath of God is coming against. No hope. And the circle of God's judgment is growing increasingly more near till we start to feel the ground. And some of you remember your testimony. The ground beneath us was shaking and hell itself was ready to swallow us up. But our God is so good that he let the wall fall on him to save everyone in the city, isn't he? He was crushed. He was bruised. He was crushed for our sins and in our place. The righteous judgment that was far greater, and those walls were thick in Jericho. You could write two chariots, archaeologists say, on top. Of the wall. That's how thick it was. To bring those walls down is nothing compared as Jesus looked into the cup that he was going to drink. The wrath that I deserved coming upon him, the sinless Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. Guys, he loves you. He went for his enemies. He didn't just say, love your enemies to his disciples. He did it. And he reconciled us to him. And he made peace where there was no peace. He brought us back to the Father. He brought us back to the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. He said, that's not enough, just walking side by side. I want to come and live inside you. I want to make my home with you. I want to indwell you by my very presence. The spirit of the living God lives in you. I don't want to just live in you. I want to give you a new heart, a heart made of flesh. I want to inscribe my law on it. I want to decorate it. I want to make it into something far greater than you could ever imagine. Guys, the greatness of the gospel says that we were his enemies and now he's made us his friend. That he's made us part of his own body. That's the truth. That's the objective truth. That's the objective historical truth. Jesus is our truth. 
Jesus is truth. And, uh, and so we don't want to be entangled with anything that's keeping us away from looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him. We run to him. We don't take our eyes off of him. We see another brother and sister who have their eyes off of Jesus. We do not go, I can't believe so-and-so has their eyes off of Jesus. We come alongside them and we say, look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. Look how great he is. Isn't he so worthy of our praise? Isn't he so good? Remember your story. Remember what he's done. And we're healed a little more. We're changed from one degree of splendor a little more. And we're able to stand against the fortress and the lies and the doubt and the speculation of the enemy as we keep locked focus on Jesus and what he's done. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, we do. There's so many things to be students of nowadays. We don't want to leave off the primary thing. Lord, rest your hearts. Glorify yourself right now in this time, Lord, as we break the bread. Your body broken like those walls that fell. Your blood poured out for our forgiveness. A life exchange for a life absolutely incredible. Lord, may that truth anchor and have its home. Lord, may everything be held together by that in our lives. So Lord, bless this time now as we celebrate you and what you've done. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us first. When we were far off. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus.